You are listening to Voices from the Elbow, a podcast by nonprofit organization Elbow River Watershed Partnership, reflecting on the now 10 years past 2013 Calgary, Alberta flood. My name is Flora. I'm the executive director for a nonprofit organization based out of Calgary, Alberta, called Elbow River Watershed Partnership, informally known as the ERWP. And I am Jer, the podcast technician with ERWP. Welcome to our first podcast episode of Voices from the Elbow. Flora, before this episode's interview, please share a brief introduction about the Elbow River Watershed Partnership. Sure. The ERWP does a range of projects in the greater Mokinstis area, more commonly called Calgary, in Treaty 7, Métis Region 3. This area we call home has been where Indigenous peoples have lived since time immemorial. Caretakers of the Treaty 7 territory are the Blackfoot Confederacy peoples, comprised of Siksika, Bukani, and Gainai, as well as the nation of Stony Nakoda and Sutina Nation whose recognized reserve lands comprise about 14% of the Elbow watershed. There are over a half a million people who drink their water from the Elbow River and many more who work and play in the area. Life, big and small, such as animals, birds, reptiles, plants, and microorganisms also rely on the Elbow. Projects the ERWP focuses on include education, research, data collection, and restoration projects. This podcast is a new pilot we are trying as a way to expand our outreach. We are inspired to capture some voices from the elbow via interviews. The first few episodes will be interviews from earlier this year, conducted by Tyler Redmond, a SATE Integrated Water Management student for his capstone project. Tyler will be speaking with water managers and local experts, reflecting on the 10-year anniversary of the 2013 flood. Flora and I, Jer, will be introducing and concluding each of these podcast episodes with some backgrounds and perhaps translating some of the more advanced jargon throughout these interviews. To briefly introduce myself, considering this is our first episode, I am a fourth-year undergraduate student at the University of Calgary studying political science. I am Nihiao Woodland Cree, belonging to Little Red River Cree Nation, located in Treaty 8 territory, about a 12-hour north and a bit east drive from, from Calgary. I share such about me as I have a particular affinity for indigenous political philosophy, meaning to say I know very little about watersheds, flooding, flood resilience, flood mitigation, etc. All that I know is that water can taste a bit funny during spring runoff and snow is melting because the city of Calgary sometimes needs to add more chlorine to keep our water clean. So with all of this being said, hopefully my perspective can help you the listener follow along with some of the more technical conversations because I'm sure would like to understand the importance of flood resiliency, flood mitigation, as will be discussed in this episode. And for those of us that weren't in the area at the time, here's a little background on the flood. On June 19, 2013, an unusually intense storm system settled over the foothills of the Rockies and dumped rain and then more rain over a wide swath of southern Alberta. The heavy precipitation fell on snow, increasing the volume of water throughout the Bow River Basin. By the following day, rivers and streams in southern Alberta, including the Elbow, had become raging torrents, wreaking destruction from Camor to Bassano. The 2013 flood claimed the lives of four people, displaced tens of thousands of residents, destroyed homes and properties, and cost billions in damage. 
It also caused different levels of government and communities to consider new ways to build resilience into local watersheds. Ten years after the flood of 2013, just how resilient to flooding is the Elbow River watershed? We discovered that its resiliency is considerably more than it was in 2013. Please join us as we find voices from the Elbow to share their insight on the flood anniversary as well as other topics. This interview is with Mark Bennett. Mark was the former executive director of the Bow River Basin Council. Mark served in this position for over 20 years and continues to work with the council in a volunteer role. The work of the Bow River Basin Council is that they are a watershed planning and advisory council based out of Calgary. This nonprofit organization reports on watershed health and facilitates collaborative planning education and stewardship. To note, there are 11 watershed planning and advisory councils in Alberta. As Mark mentions during his interview, previous to working for the Bow River Basin Council, BRBC for short, as will be mentioned in the interview, Mark was the emergency program coordinator for the city of Winnipeg for a total of eight years, including taking the position as emergency manager in 1995 when a large flood hit the area. Now, with all of our introduction out of the way, please enjoy Mark and Tyler's conversation about flood resiliency, reflecting on the 2013 Calgary flood. Here we have Mark Bennett joining us for an uh, interview. Thank you very much for your time. Um, just to kind of kick things off here, Mark, uh, would you be able to tell us about the uh, impacts that the 2013 flood has brought on Calgary's infrastructure and how it's influenced communities maybe around the Bow Basin uh, specifically? Sure. First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you, Tyler. In 2013, I, I took a pretty profound interest in the flood, but I did not have a direct response uh, role to play. So um, I don't know much about the exact details of the specific response measures. And I was involved a certain amount in some of the after action reporting and, and some of the planning that has gone on subsequent to the flood. Clearly, it, it had a very dramatic impact on not just the city of Calgary, but pretty much the entire Bow Basin. There were very obvious, destructive, and expensive remnants of the flood, at least uh, starting in Canmore. Perhaps there was a little bit in Banff or in the park, but I'm not aware of too much there. But then it extended right down the valley, moderated as one would expect uh, a certain amount each time it re uh, reached a control structure, a dam, or a weir. Even I know from colleagues working, I was working with at the time that it was even quite hairy uh, as far downstream as the Bassano Dam, which is the where the water is taken off for the Eastern Irrigation District. And in fact, one of the bigger infrastructure projects to date from the flood was a, a, a very large a bypass structure that was built adjacent to the existing dam so that in a similar-sized event in the future, they would be able to pass water much more easily through this um, overflow channel or bypass. Things were reported as quite hairy at the dam at the time, like <laughs> the whole dam was vibrating by from the amount of water that was flowing over it. And I'm not a hydrologic engineer, but I'm pretty sure it's not a good thing if dams are vibrating. I would assume not, no. And, and then there's been a lot of work in the city 
One of the first projects that I was aware of in building a, uh, for lack of a better title, I guess, a seawall around the, the stampede grounds. There were there were many iconic photographs following the flood of of the grandstand area and the infield of stampede underwater. No one wants to see that. But remarkably, they, they were up and running that year, which hats off to them. But that seawall uh, was built and is intended to prevent that situation from happening again, uh, should there be a similar-sized flood. And then there's been a lot of preparatory work without it uh, leading much to much construction yet, although I know that storage reservoir, SR1, as it's known on the Elbow River, uh, shovels are in the ground on that, and it is under construction as we speak. So yeah, it, it was it was very, very uh, impactful. I'm sure a source of much attention, not only this year on a 10th anniversary, but in, in subsequent anniversaries. Years where we get a significant snowpack, that's going to be uh, triggering alarms for some people, for sure. And the, and the flood largely was caused by rain on snow. The rain on its own uh, would not have contributed the flood that we saw. Mm-hmm. And had the snow melted as it might normally, that would have stretched over a greater period of time and not there wouldn't have been such a pronounced peak. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for your uh, response on that. What measures has Calgary implemented slash the Bow Basin implemented uh, to increase some of the flood and drought resiliency since we've uh, seen that happen in 2013, like you mentioned? You know, frankly, for, for really detailed information on the, the city's response, and I know they've, they've done quite a lot, uh, you would best speak to someone from the city who... But I know that they've undertaken studies and looked at uh, where mitigation may be helped. I know probably one of the bigger projects was the installation of some gates on the top of the Glenmore Dam effectively increased the full supply level of the Glenmore Reservoir if needed. In 2013, as you might know, even with the very little warning that we got measured in days, if not hours, they were able to release some waters from Glenmore to create room for some storage Tragically, not enough. At the peak discharge at Weaselhead, I, I believe the Elbow River was flowing at about 1,254 either cubic meters or cubic feet per second. I'm not sure, but it was a lot. And so as a result, the Glenmore Reservoir filled quite rapidly. With the addition of the gates, um, it allows bigger and uh, longer time-wise buffer uh, to potentially capture and hopefully shave the peak off of a substantial discharge with there being no control structures. Upstream of Glenmore, the the natural flood crest, which of course is defined by the meteorological conditions at the time, it tends to be very sharp. Um, it's not gradual either in its rise or fall. It's basically a, a wave coming down the river. And I think it's important to recognize the city can unfortunately be subjected to two floods. They can and did in 2013 happen more or less synchronously, but they, they could also happen separately. You have a riverine flood, which is the flow in the river bringing 
basically the discharge from upstream, the foothills and the mountains. But if there is sufficient rainfall, you have uh, an occurrence which is usually referred to as an urban flood. And and that usually um, stretches or exceeds the capacity of the urban land drainage system, storm sewers, if you will. And then, of course, if the two happen synchronously, uh, once the stormwater reaches the river, it's taking an existing flood and making it worse. Thanks for sharing on that. And I guess looking more specifically at the BRBC, which I know you're uh, more well-versed in you being the uh, you know, the, uh, the head cheese for a while. How has the BRBC specifically worked with stakeholders and uh, perhaps community members to develop and implement uh, these sort of uh, measures that you've mentioned? Well, um, that's a great question, Tyler. We were invited to uh, work both with a provincial and city initiatives that reviewed the flood and began to consider uh, different mitigation options. Bearing in mind that, that the BRBC uh, at the time was a staff of three, and, and we are a membership-driven and a membership-based organization, often when advice is sought from the BRBC, and the BRBC is a recognized watershed planning and advisory council, we can and do turn to specific pockets of expertise within our membership to represent the organization in deliberations that may involve finer details of river engineering, uh, ecological considerations, and in some instances, perhaps even social impacts. But we were involved in, and we had also prepared a discussion paper that was presented to the provincial government and I think was reasonably well received, where we we shared some of our observations in hopes that they might help to guide or direct uh, ongoing deliberations, perhaps sometimes pointing out the things that others may not. I, I guess the one example I would cite is floods are a natural occurrence, and in the absence of human vulnerabilities, they are necessary to sustain and evolve uh, the ecosystem of a riverine system. In other words, they're necessary. Rivers that don't flood typically don't do well. Now, coming out with a message like that right after a flood is not likely to get a soft landing. But we felt it was necessary to make the point. Prior to the flood, there, there had been such a considerable amount of energy and effort gone into developing, I think, a much needed uh, heightened respect for the ecosystem. It seemed unfortunate if that got sort of at best delayed, at worst reversed as the result of a flood. And I'm not sure if either of those things has really happened, but it, it was a message that we, we felt important to to mention to sort of get on the record that there is a lot of interest with some justification I'm sure has gone into flood control in in hard engineered structures having once lived in Winnipeg I've I've seen that writ large Winnipeg uh, both the Assiniboine and the Red River have a very impressive <laughs> flood mitigation engineering including a large floodway that is excavated around the city of Winnipeg, carrying about 65,000 cubic feet per second at, at peak discharge. You know, one of, the, one of the things that comes up in discussion often about 
floods is natural infrastructure. And um, certainly our group was one where we wanted to make sure that it was not lost, that a healthy, fully functioning ecosystem has within it measures that can attenuate a flood. And I, I couldn't frankly count the number of times, but often people would come to me and say, well, you could have all the wetlands in the world and it wouldn't have stopped the 2013 flood. And my response was always the same. I wouldn't expect all the wetlands in the world to be employed on stopping uh, Bow River flood, but the river does need to flood sometimes. And my view, looking at it through the ecological lens, is uh, somewhere within our basin, and I'm not sure exactly where that would have been, there was a, a building or a structure that was most at risk. The first one that was claimed by the flood, tragically. Nothing would have saved that building. But I'm more concerned about the 10, 15, or 20, or 30, or 100 that were taken at peak discharge of the flood, the last ones to go, because those are the ones that in all likelihood would have been spared by natural infrastructure if there were a good network of wetlands and riparian areas on the river and its tributaries that we know slows the flow into the river and attenuates the discharge of the flood naturally. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that was a, an excellent segue because I was going to actually lead into the uh, importance of, you know, green infrastructure as opposed to, you know, these uh, sort of um, harder, you know, gray infrastructure that we often see as far as uh, flood mitigation or um, drought resiliency goes. So uh, thank you for touching on that. Um, was there any, you know, looking at the metrics of the um, effectiveness of the green infrastructure. Is there a means of measuring how well uh, or how not well that they perform in terms of, uh, you know, flood and uh, drought resiliency? Or is it just kind of uh, looking at the whole picture and seeing how uh, it plays out after such a such an event, I suppose? Um, it, it is my understanding, although I certainly haven't read every report and probably only a fraction of them. But looking at the effectiveness of natural infrastructure for flood attenuation and other environmental benefits has been going on for, by my reckoning, at least the last 10 to 20 years. And I, I know for one source, um, I believe it was the David Suzuki Foundation, they have attempted to monetize the benefits of green infrastructure and that in itself is fraught with a little bit of difficulty because some people find it offensive that we have to monetize nature. As unpleasant as it may seem to be, if you're talking to decision makers and that's the only language you understand, or they understand, I mean, uh, then you have to do it that way. Um, there's no point telling somebody in Greek what you want if all they speak is English. So, and and I know that, uh, I believe it's the Canadian Council of Ministers of Environment and perhaps also the Canadian Federation of Municipalities. So, in the public sector side, um, I know work has gone into helping to define the benefits of green infrastructure. So, more information is being collected all the time, but it should be valued and probably valued at a greater extent than it is today. 
And I wish it would be a bigger part of the discussions around flood mitigation. I guess it's not green infrastructure, but it's a different approach. If I may just touch on it, there there is the approach of, of relocation. Now, that's something that has not received a, a lot of attention after the 2013 flood, although it was done on a very small scale in, uh, in the community of High River, where it was determined that a particular subdivision was at extraordinarily high risk. And the best option going forward was to purchase those properties, buy out, essentially remove the development that's there. This isn't a new idea. Um, it's been done a lot in the United States, the, the Mississippi River subject to flooding quite frequently. I think there's been over 170,000 properties in the U.S. bought out along the Mississippi River in, in other areas. Nowadays, there is mounting concern, appropriately, I think, about coastal flooding and rising sea levels, pretty much recognized as a, as a function of climate change. And uh, the, the notion of what is called strategic retreat is taking root strongly of moving back because let's face it you can't, you can't build a reservoir that's going to hold back the pacific or atlantic oceans but you don't even have to go to that large scale uh two years after the 2013 flood there was a very large flood on the ottawa river that impacted ottawa our nation's capital and the west end of montreal and interestingly after that flood they produced flood hazard maps that showed the areas at risk and and at what flows, and then began uh, programs on both the Ontario and Quebec side of buyouts and relocation, simply because it, even on the Ottawa River, it would not have been possible to build an off-stream reservoir that would have held the crest of that particular flood. So they were left with no other option. Because we seem to be in the area of engineering possibility here, attention has turned to, to storage as, as a mitigation, and it certainly is a type of mitigation. I would have been happier if more attention had been paid to looking at relocation options. In a previous life, I worked in emergency measures, and 2013 wasn't my first experience with flooding. And in jurisdictions all across Canada, and in fact, probably throughout the developed world, there has been an awareness for decades about the vulnerability and risk associated with developing in floodplains. But unfortunately, there just hasn't been, dare I say, the courage in planning to pay as much attention to that fact as possible. Calgary, as a city, has a very well-defined floodplain. You only need to go downtown and, and you can see it. There is a very obvious escarpment on the north side of the river, a little farther away, but equally obvious if you go straight south. And certainly any construction of anything that's built out of that valley is going to, in all likelihood, be completely free of any risk of riverine flooding, simply put. Yeah, very well said, and I agree with uh, essentially all those points, you know, one of the main points that we uh, touch on, you know, learning about my program is, uh, quote unquote, let the river breathe. And it seems like uh, it's easy enough to abide by those rules. And uh, it seems quite intuitive, but uh, it's shocking to see the lack of uh, foresight that is uh, presented with the 
uh, you know, communities and houses being built so close to the floodplain, like you mentioned. And, you know, looking at the purchasing of the properties and uh, buying out the millions of dollars, has there been any sort of uh, collaboration with like the government and neighboring communities on those floodplains to ensure that there is maybe more flood and drought resiliency in the future? Or is it uh, more so of a play-by-play as they go? Sadly, I think it's probably the latter. There were, I think, 10 properties that were bought out in the city of Calgary along the Bull River downstream of the Glenmore Dam. I haven't kept up with what the exact disposition of those properties is currently. I do know that there was pressure to see them redeveloped. And I don't know if redevelopment was pursued, whether or not, at the very least, uh, new construction would be done in such a matter that it would increase the flood resiliency on that specific property. One would hope so, but I don't, I don't really know. The problem that I encountered in seeking to have the idea of, of relocation discussed in a meaningful way was if I brought it up, it would be instantly brushed aside and a respondent might say, well, you're not going to be able to move all of downtown Calgary. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think I ever said we would move all of downtown Calgary. But interestingly, to this day, 10 years later, we still don't have accurate flood risk maps publicly available that will tell us what did flood downtown in 2013 and why did it flood in 2013. Um, Because of the confluence of the two rivers, there were some parts of downtown that flooded due to high levels on the bow and there were some parts that flooded due to high levels on the elbow. And unfortunately, uh, the two crests were pretty synchronous. The fact remains, you can build the best flood control possible on the Elbow River, and it's not going to help anything that flooded from the bow. So there's a lot of nuance would need to go into any discussion about relocation. Like I said, th- those discussions just have not happened, which is sad, because the initial cost estimate that came out post-flood, probably within six to eight months, for SR1 was $189 million. They are now budgeted, I believe, at over $800 million, and that job is not done yet. Um, That's a big difference. Part of the justification for building it was looking at the cost-benefit analysis, damages versus costs. Well, whatever the costs were, those haven't changed. What was flooded was flooded and replacing it, fixing it, or moving it wouldn't cost much more today than it did 10 years ago. But the costs of the mitigation have never been fixed and continue to climb. Logic would seem to dictate that at some point those two lines cross and we'll never know where that is because that study's just simply not being done. When you build a flood control structure and it's perfectly functional and built by the best engineers on the planet, there are two realities that are inescapable. One is it's not infallible. The probability of a water control structure, a dam or a reservoir failing is never zero. It may be incredibly small, almost infinitesimally small, but it's never zero. So there is that risk. And then there is the design capacity. The structure will only deal with a flood of a certain magnitude. Should a flood occur that's greater than that magnitude, the additional waters will be passed. 
and the SR-1 is constructed with exactly that in mind. Once the reservoir is full, any more water that comes down the canal towards the reservoir, once it's at full supply level, will be discharged by a floodway in the embankment back into the river from whence it came. Almost as fast as it's coming out, it will be going back in. The flood of 2013, as big and as awful as it was, is not believed to be at all the biggest flood that could ever occur on the Elbow River. The probable maximum flood, PMF as it's called, that went into the design of the Glenmore Causeway, which is the road that divides the two cells of the, the Glenmore Reservoir, that probable maximum flood is twice the size of the flood that happened in 2013. Certainly in the construction of the road, there was a resident belief the largest flood that could cause a problem was much bigger than the flood that actually happened in 2013, yet the, the flood con mitigation structures are designed for 2013, and as long as the next flood is no bigger than that, we're fine. Um, if it gets bigger, then we have a problem. So it leads to the question, what if we had spent $800 million on floodway clearance? The conventional wisdom is that if you move something out of the way, you have eliminated a risk. Whatever was there is not there now, so it doesn't matter if the same flood happens again. There's no damage. If you create an exclusion area, then yes, that also has a design capacity. So let's say that we des defined an exclusion capacity that would be equivalent to the 2013 flood. So there would be two options. One, the water's held, no damage. One, the water is passed, there's no damage, but all the houses were removed. A bigger flood comes along, and there's only a marginal increase in the damages from the exclusion zone model based on the additional magnitude of exceedance. So only the next row of houses or whatever is at risk if the flood's just a little bit bigger than the exclusion zone. However, you go with the reservoir, then nothing's been moved. And when you start passing an exceedance event, if it ends up being half the size of the 2013 flood, so the, the, the entire flood was one and a half times the size, well, you're going to get half the damages of 2013 because nothing was moved. You built a reservoir. So you've spent $800 million plus now you're going to have $400 million damage on top of that. Whereas if you had moved what you could, that money is saved and the incremental damage is not $400 million. Very well said. And I mean, might you correct me on this. I believe it was a one in a hundred year event that occurred uh, for the, uh, you know, the flooding of the bow and the elbow. And, you know, if they're only preparing for an event uh, that might exceed that, you know, marginally, then what would be the best way uh, to prepare for a more uh, catastrophic event, maybe a, perhaps a one in 200 year event or one in a 500 year event. Is there any way that you'd suggest that'd be the best way to move forward or is it more so just kind of figure it out after it happens? And I know that's a bit of a uh, large uh, scale to look at, but um, yeah, just out of my curiosity, I suppose. It's another great question, Tyler, and um, I'm going to venture into an area that is well beyond my intellectual capacity, but I know 
for a fact that a report was prepared for the provincial government uh, within the last 30 years, I believe, by two eminent civil engineers uh, looking at flooding in the Bow River. And one of their primary conclusions was, do not use return frequencies. And yet we still do that. We know that the data set upon which these frequencies are calculated is not stationary. So what is a one in a hundred year flood 10 years ago is not a one in a hundred year flood today, nor will it be a one in a hundred year flood 10 years from now. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to find a measure that works better in our situation. And quite frankly, um, I think it probably should be flow. We can measure flows fairly accurately and we could know what is the area of inundation from a flood of 1,000 cubic meters per second. Now, it doesn't matter if that's a 1 in 10, a 1 in 50, a 1 in 100, or a 1 in a million. It's always going to be the same area that floods when it's the same flow, which is 1,000 cubic meters per second. There are inherent problems um, with that return frequency. Engineers understand it well, and thankfully, they're the ones that design and build the stuff that we rely heavily on. That's fine. But if you walk out on the street and talk to 10 people, probably more than half of them are going to say, well, if it's a one in a hundred year flood, we're good for the next 99 years. And we're not good for the next 99 years. At the very minimum, you have to turn that return frequency around and make it a probability. A one in a hundred year flood means there's a 1% possibility that that flood could happen every year. But still, I, I like the idea of flow better. I would start there. And like I said, there are people much brighter than I that have advised that we get away from that. I know that there are moves afoot now to, to make the, the standard at least go from one in 100 to one in 200, which obviously would be progress, but it doesn't resolve the problem of the return frequency issue. I know, I can't remember the exact details, but I know I saw two different engineering reports of the 2013 flood and they had different return frequencies for the same flow. Yeah, I use the example of the one in a uh, hundred year, one in X year floods because that is uh, what we touched on mainly, but going off your personal uh, or professional opinion, that's uh, it's not the most conducive to preparing us for it. Because, you know, like you said, it's realistically could happen. There's a 1% chance of it occurring each year as opposed to, uh, you know, it's a little backwards way of thinking. So that's um, that's very interesting to touch on. Looking at that, has there been any innovations or ideas brought forward that you think might drastically change the way we perceive these sort of threats or the way that um, maybe the city of Calgary as a whole or maybe just smaller communities uh, looking at like the Bow, the Bow Basin, for example, would implement to, you know, reduce the uh, amount of damage or uh, loss of anything really from something like that? Well, I guess... The first and really only thing that comes to mind for me, and in, in some comments you made a few minutes ago, you talked, let the river breathe. Well, there was, in fact, a study done after the flood of 2013 called Room for the River, uh, done by no less experts than flood experts from the Netherlands. And I think if you're going to go to any experts on this planet and you want to go to the best, you're probably can't do much better than go to the Never Netherlands because 60% of their country exists below sea level. <laughs> so I think they have a very good understanding of floods and flooding. They prepared a report 
and and talked about in in I think sufficient detail uh, as far as innovation goes about the wisdom of withdrawing from the floodplain and and giving room to the river. But it really didn't receive much traction. So it was done. It was given a nod, but it I can't honestly see any signs that it has had a dramatic impact on flood mitigation planning going forward. Perhaps I'm missing something, but I haven't, haven't seen it. No, that's all right. I, uh, I I didn't think there was much either. I just there's something that I may have not touched on, and that is uh, that is that is all good for now. But um, you know, is there any any topics or any um, you know points of interest that you'd like to bring up or perhaps um, talk about a bit more that I haven't uh, touched on? There's a couple of things. Uh, they're just observations. I was in a previous life. I was the emergency program manager for the city of Winnipeg during the 1997 Red River flood. Now that flood, for all intents and purposes, compared to the one in Calgary, it may as well have been on another planet. Uh, the the topography is so different there. Uh, the 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 way that a f- flood happens, the warning, everything is different. In that flood, we produced in the city of Winnipeg over 8.1 million sandbags for sandbagging operations. That met about half of the need within the city. The rest was done quickly with earthen dikes. But 8.1 million sandbags, to give you an idea of just how many sandbags, standard sandbag weighs about 35 pounds dry, a lot more wet, and they're about a foot wide at the bottom. If you're standing them up on end, they're longer when they're laying down. 8.1 million sandbags laid side by side, starting in Winnipeg and going just about any direction you choose, that line of sandbags will end up in salt water. And Winnipeg is almost the exact center of the North American continent. So we, we did a lot of sandbagging. One of the things that makes a flood different, certainly psychologically, than other disasters if you prepare for a flood and it turns out that you're one or two sandbags short, it's like you didn't do anything. You will almost inevitably feel the full brunt of the flood and all of the catastrophic damages that go along with it for want of a handful of sandbags. Many other types of disasters, you can be three quarters ready and be three quarters spared. That's not the case with the flood. And the other thing I've come to understand mostly working in Western Canada, is that there is um, there's a, an important issue of drought resiliency and being prepared for droughts. But it's critically important that everyone understands that a drought is not the opposite of a flood. They are completely different things. The only thing they share in common is water. One has way too much and one has not enough. You can actually have a flood, a riverine flood, occur right in the middle of a severe regional drought, and both can happen simultaneously. Droughts are, as I said, regional. They are much greater in expanse. If you're looking exclusively at riverine floods, they're fairly easy to define. If you've got the uh, LIDAR and topography well mapped, you can know with great detail um, what areas will flood under what flows. So we have to be careful thinking that one is the opposite of the other. And the reason I bring that up is some talk, I don't know at what level and at what degree of seriousness, has gone into the notion that when we build flood control structures, there is an associated drought mitigation benefit. 
you really have to think about that. A flood structure full of water is great for a drought, but it's not very good for a subsequent flood. And a flood mitigation structure that has no water in it, or it's empty, is awesome for a potential flood, but it doesn't help the drought at all. And so the notion that you could use one structure to handle both things, I don't know, it's a simplistic view, I know, but it seems to me that you would have to keep it half full and do neither job well. <laughs> yeah, no, very well said. And uh, you know, to kind of go back on what you said, 8.1 um, million sandbags, you said that's absolutely ridiculous to, you know, for lack of a better term, but it seems, it's surprising to me that the threshold, you know, is so low for the amount of, uh, like, tolerability. So you said if you're one or two short, you could absolutely just, might as well not have installed them. So very interesting point to bring up, but um, no, thank you very much. Is there anything uh, else that you'd like to touch on or perhaps mention? You uh, you seem to do a very good job of uh, covering some of the bases before I was able to uh, even ask you, so I appreciate uh, the ease of that. But um, was there anything, any final uh, footnotes you wanted to add there, Mark? Um, no, not today, but I know that you'll go away and perhaps spend a little bit of time in your editing suite and... Certainly, I want to extend the invitation that if you if you come up with a subsequent question, even if it's just to expand on context, please get a hold of me. I mean, it doesn't have to involve a, any more interview, but if you have a question that I can answer easily, I'd be happy to do so. Well, thank you very much for your uh, time here today, Mark, and um, I guess that is a wrap. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. That's great. Thank you to Mark Bennett and interviewer Tyler Redman for quite an interesting, learned conversation. As I mentioned in our long introduction, I, Jer, have joined this podcast as primarily a technician, uh, just someone who is really quite unfamiliar with the topics that are discussed uh, here. So to weigh the waters, I will conclude this podcast episode with a couple questions and answers I pieced together while listening to the interview. Mark mentions at one point that there is no courage to build away from the floodplain. Why, though, is there no courage to build away from the floodplain? Well, considering the association with luxury when living near water, courage is said in reference to folks involved in the housing development. Also, such courage may be required of government representatives to place restrictions on living really close to floodplains or even living on floodplains in general. Relatedly, when Mark was discussing that the floodplain maps have not been updated by the province of Alberta since some decades ago, well, I wonder if the property values of established communities are a factor here. A question to ponder, perhaps. Another question that came to mind revolves around the discussion that floods are natural. So, then if a river is not permitted to naturally flood, what happens to the health of a river, and why should one care about a river not doing well? Rivers bring nutrients, mineral-rich soils, which builds up healthier plant life near the river. Also, water quality during poor conditions of river health will probably result in an increased sediment load, and what this means with a higher sediment load is that there is going to be a much higher chance of w poor water quality, which can specifically look like the water appearing uh, quite darker or cloudier, murkier, which can be quite devastating for animals trying to find food within the water, which for fish especially, trying to find food in dark conditions is, well, quite a curtailment to their flourishment, I suppose. 
And with that being said, folks, we find ourselves at the conclusion of the beginning of our podcast series, Voices from the Elbow. Thank you again to Mark Bennett from the Bow River Basin Council for agreeing to be interviewed, the interviewer Tyler Redman, a state student in integrated water management, Flora, fellow ERWP member for being my co-host in the introduction of this episode, and thank you for listening to this podcast. My name is Jer, and we at ERWP hope you will join us soon again for another episode of Voices from the Elbow. Voices from the Elbow.